0: Dr. Furman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure meeting you face-to-face. Of course, Dean and I admire you, and we've known of your work for such a long time. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on our uh, podcast today.
1: My pleasure. Excited to be here.
0: We have a large population of doctors, residents, medical students in different fields of medicine who are big believers of the power of lifestyle and are implementing that in their patient populations, and they know of your work. Um, whenever we start a conversation with a leader in healthcare, we always want to know a little bit about their journey. What happened and what made them go through this journey? What made lifestyle stand out for you? So if you could share that with us, we would really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's a, it's a long, complicated story. I'll try to summarize it. Um, my father, when I was in my teenage years, was overweight and sickly. And he started reading books from Herbert Shelton from the American Natural Hygiene Society who wrote most of his books, I think, in the 40s and 50s. And so uh, my father brought this way of eating into our home and we kind of thought he was nuts at the, you know early on. But then the exposure to all these people eating so healthfully, watching them transform their health and him improving his health, um, had an effect on us when we were teenagers. And I was on the United States world figure skating team. I was competing as a competitive athlete, always looking to better our stamina and strength, but also not wanting to get ill, to miss training, or to, you know, not be able to, you know, being able to be, be well and never get sick. So we started, of course, eating healthfully um, in my teenage years. And then the more reading I've done at that point in my, you know, that was back in the 1970s. When I was a teenager, so back. Um, so at that point, the more I looked into it, um, the more impressed I became with the fact that everybody is eating themselves to death, and you don't have to be sick, and you don't have to have heart attacks and strokes and you know all the things that happens to cancers, that these things are earned by bad, by bad health habits. And I started to become an, a person interested in health um, as I was transitioning from my skating career into my family's shoe business my father owned 12 shoe stores in the New York, New York metropolitan area and so I started to he wanted me to take over the business the family business and then I started dating my my wife started dating a person who was going to medical school was going to medical school and I was more passionate about healthcare and going to, going to become a physician actually what happened was I was starting to tell to say to um this woman I was dating why do you want to go to medical school for anyway? Because what doctors do is kind of worthless because it's like drugs don't solve a problem. They just, you know, just cover it up. And and she said, well, if you are so passionate about all this, why don't you become a physician and change the way that people do things? And I had thought about that before that time. I just thought I was too old. I was maybe 26 or 27. I hadn't had the requirements. When I went to college, I was a business and economics major. I didn't have the pre-medical requirements. But at that point, I decided to sell the family business my, you know, so my parents could take it and retire so I could go back to school and um, take the, the post-graduate pre-med at Columbia. So I then went back to first get the, the requirements for medical school in my late 20s and didn't begin medical school until I was like probably 29 or 30 years old.
2: Amazing. You,
1: you went to Columbia University? No, I went to Columbia, but it was the postgraduate pre-med program at yeah. Columbia. Yeah. I went to yeah. medical yeah. school at Penn at University of Pennsylvania after pre-med at fantastic. Columbia. Yeah. That's I went amazing. to undergraduate amazing. in the ni- in ni- I graduated I think in 1975 or 76 from NYU as an undergraduate. Amazing. Amazing. So that's
0: pretty unique because a lot of uh, a lot of the doctors that are in the field of lifestyle <clears throat> and they work on prevention of diseases, they they had their aha moment well, in their medical training, either in medical after. school, a residency, or a fellowship, or maybe even after that. Right, right. But you actually right. went to medical school already primed about the importance of healthy lifestyle.
1: Right. I was never interested in being a conventional doctor. I went to medical school with the specific intent of being a doctor specializing in nutritional medicine, and then I became board certified in family practice because I wanted to be able to take all, you know, all ages and all types of people. Children and, and, and um, so I really had a, um, a you know very um, rewarding career over the la- over those last years and got a- and the tremendous satisfaction came from people being able to recover from what are considered irreversible illnesses mm-hmm. like multiple sclerosis lupus scleroderma psoriasis you know not just heart attacks di not just heart disease diabetes high blood pressure and the bread and butter stuff but a lot of really unusual things including. Um, You know, headaches, and you know, I had um, some young women who were on. One girl, for example, was in the national renal transplant list waiting for a new kidney Mm -hmm. with a creatinine of 4.2. Wow. And she made a complete recovery with it, and her creatinine eventually became to 0.8. That's um, amazing. That's remarkable. For example, that even surprised me, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. Absolutely. And we've
2: seen it in in our realm, in, in neuroscience, Aisha as a stroke specialist uh, uh, subs- uh, and I'm a, the neurodegenerative disorder specialist, dementia and, and cognitive aging. And, and we see this often, even with the migraines and headaches and and, and like you said, some uh, abatement of symptoms of uh, MS and other things it's, it's, we we con- consistently see the improvements that people experience myself. I saw it with my migraine, although I never bring it up because I'm not big for anecdotes, but still it's my anecdote, so <laughs> it's my story my migraines just went away with the change in lifestyle.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, Yeah, I've had some pretty, um, over the years, so many interesting cases. Um, I had one, um, teenage girl who was actually not attending school for three years in a row because her daily headaches were so severe and she was hospitalized at Brigham Young in Boston to get experimental IV treatments Mm -hmm. to break her headache cycles. Mm -hmm. And she still couldn't get back to school. And then when I, she came to me and Obviously, I weaned her off all these this constellation of drugs. And, you know, within, a, within three months, I had her total. she was totally well. And she became, you know, was running for school president of her high school class or something, you know. That's amazing. Um, but had some, you know, pretty interesting cases, including um, people who had metastatic ovarian cancer who are alive now 27 years later, um, who was given six months. One woman had um, four liters of metastatic fluid in her lung. She had chemo, but she wouldn't be living, but she's living today, 27 years later from ovarian cancer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, um, some cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that just shrunk up and just melted away before our eyes. Yeah. A, lot of in, a lot of interesting cases over the years and developing protocols for various conditions, including inflammatory bowel disease, too, mm-hmm. which is quite, um, uh, you know, um, what's the word? A difficult challenge to conquer. Of course. Right.
2: Right. Um, um, and I know that this is just for our audience sake. Uh, you wouldn't say that people should stop their chemotherapy and just do lifestyle. Do, uh, we're, we're saying that as an, an adjunct, as a, it's a powerful thing. And prior to developing cancers and things of that nature, lifestyle is probably the dominant factor as far as abatement, don't you? Uh, is that right?
1: I think generally that could be said to be true. But I think there is a lot of times where chemo is used inappropriately when it has, even the oncologists will say the the chance of chemo having a major effect here is is minor and the the possible advancement in lifespan is minimal. And in many cases, chemo is given um, inappropriately. It doesn't have to be given. In other words, um, the more aggressive the cancer, the faster that it's replicating, the more it exposes the DNA to the vulnerability of being killed by chemo. Mm -hmm. But in some slower growing cancers, um, where chemo is still given, it's relatively ineffective, mm-hmm. and I think that there are cases where people can forego chemo and just do the nutritional program. Mm.
0: That's fascinating. Um, so you've worked a lot on the um, you know the science of nutrition and what it does to cancer cells and cancer patients, um, and I know that you coined the nutritarian diet, the term nutritarian diet. Can you tell us what your experience has been in the decades that you've worked as far as you know, the role of nutrition and, and cancer is concerned? What is it in our diets, in the standard American diet, that is promoting cancer? Let's begin there.
1: Well, wow, it's a pretty big question. Well, the, everything in the standard American diet promotes cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, well, look, you can, I guess you can de- quickly said you can divide food into three categories, processed foods, animal products, and produce. And it's the high amount of processed foods and animal products because they don't contain phytochemicals and antioxidants, generally speaking. The word nutritarian refers to a diet rich in nutrients per calorie, but also comprehensive in exposure to nutrients on the, in the dietary landscape. And most of those nutrients humans need and were, are dependent on have antioxidant and phytochemical effects that are not found in animal products. Or in the processed foods, so I'm saying a piece of chicken is like a bagel, because they're not—they don't have a high micronutrient load, but they're void of phyto, they don't have the phytochemicals and antioxidants that humans—the human immune system requires. We're actually, um, as a primate, we're a heavily green vegetable-dependent animal. I always make the, you know, make the statement or the joke, if you don't like green vegetables, you better live close to a hospital. <laughs> because, you, because our body requires them for normalcy. Mm-hmm. It requires a large exposure to green vegetables for, for normalcy. Yeah. So the, you know, the answer to your question, what is there about the American diet? I mean, there's so much about it, from the fact that um, you, know, you heat oils, they become genotoxic and carcinogenic in proportion to the, 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 the heat and the amount they're cooked. They form, you know, we're talking about um, the high levels of saturated fats, and especially cooked fats, the heterocyclic amines, and polyaromatic hydrocarbons in cooked meat products. We have, there's so much about the high glycemic effect, and the, of course, the high glycemic effects, but it's not only that they're high glycemic, it's they're high glycemic, and they don't have nutrients in them that count. So when when free radicals are produced in the uh, metabolism of calories, there's no antioxidants to diminish the production of free radicals, which then you have more toxic waste accumulating cells. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's, um, you you know, I always, I use the joke when I was on my PBS television show, I've said, this diet's been designed by (laughs) Al-Qaeda. You know, it's it's perfectly designed to kill people and shorten their lives, because all the features that you need to have bad health are, you know, especially when you have combined the high glycemic carbohydrates with the excessive amount of cooked animal protein, and then you put heated oils and fried foods and sweets on top of that, I mean, we're doing everything you could possibly do that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But in any case, um, I look at it as this unprecedented opportunity in human history to do much better than the blue zones could do. We can use science to our advantage to blow the blue zone diets out of the water because those aren't particularly examples of nutritional excellence. They're just better than the, what Americans are doing mm-hmm. based on culturally what they ate in that area or what they grow in those areas. They don't have the assortment of foods that we have available on the dietary landscape in this, this country today. For example, you, know, you can get wild blueberries frozen in the wintertime. You can get you know sprouts and microgreens and baby kale and organic this. and you know e- Even though we can eat the worst diet in human history, we also can eat the best mm-hmm. if we choose to. And then somebody's eating those foods, and they wouldn't be putting them in the supermarkets. they wouldn't be selling them if nobody was buying them at all. you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so somebody is, ha- is learning this stuff and eating it because they're, they're out there in the marketplace. Um, so anyway, what I'm saying is that we have this we know so much today you know even that, and so much that you guys have been talking about that gives people this. Incredible opportunity to live longer with full mental faculty yeah. that our ancestors couldn't have done. And they don't even, can't even do in the blue zones to have this many opportunities to be a healthy centenarian.
2: Uh, um, we live in one of those. I mean, well, we, we work in one of those. We work in Loma Linda, and we actually picked uh, the, to go to Loma Linda to study this. And the disparity, and it's not geographic disparity. Five miles away, you have San Bernardino, where people come to our... Uh, we do half a day of... Uh, um, a community clinic, and we have 40-year-olds that come with microvascular disease, which nobody checks. I mean, that's an incidental that we found, but it's ubiquitous. It's ever-present. And then strokes in their 40s and mm-hmm. early 50s. Yeah, and then it's devastating. in Loma Linda, people who are even... It's, and it's not the optimal diet. It's, it's a great diet, but it's not optimal. Yeah. People are living into their 80s and 90s with full mental faculty. Imagine optimizing that. You're absolutely right. I fully agree. Optimizing it by 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 increasing the the, the the amount of vegetables and greens and legumes and 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 all these amazing powerful foods and eliminating the things that have traditionally even in the past uh, uh, attacked us. So so you're right on on the, when it comes to that. So
0: now that you know you you said it earlier yourself, Dr. Furman, that you know we know so much, and that's true. You know with with the advent of uh, uh, Internet and all these, you know, scientific articles being available for people to read, and you know, there's a lot of good on social media. There's a lot of bad on social media too. But you know, a lot of people are using these platforms for public health and for dissemination of this good news about health, healthy lifestyle. But we're still not doing very well when it comes to health. You know, with the obesity being rampant and uh, people being so sick. Uh, In your experience, you know, as someone who's been in the field for such a long time, what is the problem? What is the main impediment for people to own this and to make it a part and parcel of their life, eating healthy, that is?
1: Now, I'm not saying it's only this, but I'm saying one of the major factors here, the lack of understanding about food addiction and, and how to remove, how to treat and how to use food to minimize the effects of food addiction, how to instruct patients, and not patients, but how to instruct the public in general, um, the difficulties that could arise when you move from the average diet to a diet that's healthier, and the fact how it affects um, your, your, you could say, um, set drives in the central nervous system that are fighting that. You have two selves in conflict with each other now, and how difficult it is to give up an addictive substance when you still keep imbibing in that substance. And how baby stepping your way in, lets people um, be, you know, exacerbates their cravings. Like telling to, how come people can't quit alcohol if they keep drinking on the weekends? You know what I mean? So it's like, and so people don't realize the addictive nature of the American style of eating. Mm-hmm. It's, not just, it's not just sugar. It's also the fact that oils come into the bloodstream in such a concentrated fashion. That fried foods and the concentrated calories become addictive, an addictive substance as well. So, we're talking about salt, sugar, and oil being primarily, but not solely the addictive substances. But Americans are overall addicted to um, the heightened, um, highly palatable foods, the caloric rush into the bloodstream, which then affects um, the central nervous system and dopamine receptors. And they become just habituated to overconsuming calories and eating foods that are. Um, that they think they can't live without, and they won't even they won't even consider l- living a healthy life, most people, because they're not going to consider making the change when they think the foods they can't live without. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of education mm-hmm. to, for people to be able to recognize that they're going to feel worse temporarily when they make the switch, how important it is to avoid their illicit triggers in these foods they think they can't live without if they want to get over those cravings and develop a new taste preferences, and how your own mind can be... You know, come up with irrational um, ideas and thoughts as to why you shouldn't eat this way. You become more vulnerable for people think trying to um, think you're going to can give you the assurance that you could still eat unhealthy and get healthy and, and be healthy with some vitamin pill or something or some trick or gimmick or you know they don't people don't want to take personal responsibility. It's and and of course they have the negative influence of their um, of the social pressures of other Americans, their family, their friends, their mm. people around them who are food addicts mm-hmm. and who don't know enough. So it takes a a person that's received a tremendous amount of education into healthy living and eating, including um, how to recover from food addiction mm. that enables a person to make this change comfortably and enjoy eating this way more than their old diet. Mm-hmm. And, that's, it's, and that's where, you know, I, I wrote, as you may know, I wrote 12 different books. Yes. In seven seven of my books, were New York Times bestsellers. They all talked a lot about food addiction and the and how food addiction makes it difficult for people to make this change and what and how how can we conquer that? And enable people to make the to change over more comfortably. But without the recognition of the difficulties involved, then people generally fail. Most people don't succeed in getting, you know, as you can imagine, most people that are overweight stay overweight. Yeah. They don't really get back to becoming a favorable body fat. They just stay, you know obese or whatever. But, you know, and then I, um, with all the successes and all the failures that I've experienced, because obviously you can imagine a doctor gets people you help, but you also get thousands of people you can not you can help, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, So then I, um, as I, um, wound, you know, winding down my career and not seeing patients, you know, a hundred, you know, hours a week, whatever it was, but now without working all the time, I am opened up a retreat in San Diego where people can spend two to three months here. So now the, the, the people I see as patients are, are actually guests of mine that come in for a few months because they're people that, have, that recognize they have trouble doing this on their own, but when they're in an environment that's so favorable to doing it, and they can be educated not just with what to eat and the recipes and the science behind it, but also how to change your thought process and your emotions to to remove food addictions get get more pleasure out of the living and out of eating even without you know with without eating the way most other people mm-hmm. eat and that's somewhat of a that's somewhat of a skill in the sense of how do you go after pleasure in life and what gives you pleasure and what makes you feel good about yourself because if you're a, if you're looking to get pleasure from people um, thinking highly of you if you're trying to impress other people and show off or then you're not going to be able to stick to eating this way because you're not going to, get, you're not going to impress other people and get that kind of um, support that you, um, that you had in the past. You're going to develop people that don't like it. And if you can't deal with the fact that um, you're not getting the support or approval of others, mm-hmm. if you're still driven by the approval of other people for your own self-esteem, you're more likely going to fail on this program. They have to develop self-esteem based on who they are from internal sources on their kindness, their gratitude, their m- ability to be useful to others, you know, the ability to creative goodwill, feeling good about they, they've got a whole different collection of things to appreciate in the natural world as opposed to trying to impress other people with how great they are. You know, yeah. so in other words, we, we're training people emotionally and cognitively as to how to um, be comfortable in their own skin yeah. so they can be different and be a leader and not a follower. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are it's a difficult complicated question which we can't deal with on you know enough time here because we could write a whole book about it but in any case it's part of the challenge of being a physician trying to change people's behavior is understanding the emotional and psychological effects which makes it difficult for people to make that change. Yeah. Know, Absolutely. I, I, one
2: of the things that we my my particular focus in life has been a neurobehavioral aspect of things. And um, the idea of creating a focus around a person's clear objectives is is so critical, so central. and And what happens, there's so much noise out there that can always pull you away from that that focus. And, and if you can kind of, I love the idea of the two month program, it's that time where you have the person where you can actually develop the tools of creating that level of focus that can then be sustained within one's life can be inculcated into their very being. That's, that's the only way that you can do it. Now, the challenge is, which is what we were trying to do, we just did the National Academy of Medicine Award for our research in the communities is how do you translate it to large populations? That's a, that's a major challenge. And and we love
1: uh, your approach. Absolutely. Yes, and, I, and I've always stated that, um, you know, I, I've said to, like, the American Heart Association says, once the person develops heart disease, cut their salt intake back. And I say, how ridiculous is that? It then If it's right for a person who develops heart disease to cut their salt intake back, then we should have cut the salt intake back in their childhood, not waited until they develop. You don't tell people to quit smoking after they get lung cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing is true here that, If we're going to have an impact on the societal impact, it has to be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional science taught in grade schools. And it has to um, infiltrate all aspects of society, not just people who are sick. So so in other words, we're trying to impact all of society, and that's when we can have the most effect on on outcomes.
0: That's... Beautifully stated, Dr. Furman. That's exactly what we believe in too. And especially in our realm of work, we deal with patients with dementia. And, you know, specifically Alzheimer's disease because it is the most common type of dementia. And when they come into the clinic, when we were trained as as physicians, um, they always came in at the point of the disease, and it was too late. And they were given some you know, medications that basically just control the symptoms for a very short period of time, if at all, but didn't really do anything to the disease process. And what we learned and what we keep on telling people is that the disease doesn't start when the doctor diagnoses you. The disease actually starts 30 years ahead of time. That's when the pathological changes occur in the brain. And it's almost too late when the, you know, first signs of, you know, the memory problems actually start kicking in. Yes, there's a lot one can do about it. Uh, but it's important for people to realize that sick care and health care are two very different things. And I know that you talk about that often too, correct?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: And um, one of the things um, that I wanted to ask you was, and you've talked about this in the past, you know, when a person who's overweight and who doesn't really come under the definition of having high cholesterol levels or, you know, is diabetic, are, is it okay to call them healthy? If they don't if they're overweight and if they have the risks for metabolic diseases, but they don't really meet the certain t- criteria for hyperlipidemia and diabetes,
1: That shows you how um how distorted the medical profession gives you a view of health because we only recognize things that are unhealthy when we have a drug that can treat a, a parameter, like it's lower, you can lower cholesterol, so cholesterol is the thing that we watch. We can lower glucose, so glucose is the thing we watch. We can lower you know so we We have a distorted view of looking at the body. But in answer to your question, um, there's no such thing as a healthy overweight person because in proportion to your body fat rises, and I'm saying rises above probably 15% body fat for a male and above 25% body fat for a female, which corresponds to maybe a BMI of 20, probably 21 and 22, you know, 21 for a female, 22 for a male. But in any case... Um, As your body fat rises to that degree that it rises in proportion, you have higher inflammatory markers that are measurable and you have higher levels of estrogen and production from aromatase activity. Fat Fat cells are naturally hypoxic tissue. They don't have a great blood supply, so they spew out free radicals, lipokines and cytokines, and they age the body prematurely, and they accelerate the progression of all diseases. And so an insulin, the hallmark of a healthy centenarian with with good mental faculties is also they're insulin sensitive, not insulin resistant. You know, so we're we're talking here about, like you said, 30 years earlier. And so, and what interestingly, when you're, when you're eating, let's say, a thousand calories too much every day, or let's say a hundred, let's say 200 calories over your basal metabolic rate plus your exercise burn. 200 calories a day extra. It's about 3,500 calories a pound, and 100 calories times 350 days a year is about 10 pounds of fat per year from extra 100 calories, so 200 calories a day, you'd think the person would put on an extra 20 pounds each year if they overshoot their caloric needs by 200 calories a day, but they don't put on 20 pounds that year because when you increase the calories you consume over your needs, the body tries to burn off some of those calories if it can and tries not to put them all on as fat. So it raises your metabolic burn, the, the raises the rate at which your furnace is firing, and it raises your thyroid, your body temperature raises, your, um, your respiratory quotient raises a bit. So we're talking here about, um, you're actually shortening your telomeres mm-hmm. and burning out your stem cells and aging faster because the body tries to raise the metabolic rate. And there's more heart attacks occur, by the way, in the, if you look at the level of normal level of free T4, in the upper range of normal, you have much more heart attacks and cardiac arrhythmias. Mm. We're talking about it's healthier to be somewhat lower in thyroid function as well. But in any case, what I'm saying right now is that when you're putting on weight and you're overweight, you just didn't consume the extra calories accounting for the extra weight. You've also included the extra calories that aren't seen that now were used to raise your metabolism from the extra calories you consumed, which then sped up the aging process. Yeah. So it's not, it's not merely, and, and when you moderately calorically restrict, without, you know, then your body is slowing down metabolism to aging slower. So we have the ability to eat the right foods and to exercise appropriately, and we have the ability to modulate our body weight, our strength, our stamina, and our um, agility and, and of course, the quality of what we're eating, we have, we have the effects to maximize our choices if we want to, mm-hmm. but very, but people mostly don't behave in their best interest. They, they practice self-destructive behaviors because they've just been raised in this environment where that becomes the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it takes a little bit of... Um, learning to see how we can modulate these things that control our lifespan and our health as we age to put us back in control of our health destiny. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. I think it's one of the first times we've done dozens of
2: uh, podcasts and one of the first times we've heard somebody talk about this in, in terms of slowing meta- metabolic processes. And, right. and, and people talk about calorie restriction, people talk about different things, but they don't really address the underlying mechanism, which is actually slowing down the process. living itself is a catabolic process. So if you can, if you can slow it down in any way possible, especially in a passive way through foods that are not as catabolically active, and are not producing the glycemic byproducts that are not producing the metal methylation, they're, they're not producing the oxidative byproducts. That's the best way you're basically living at a slower state, but living optimally as well without getting this mitochondria moving, the telomere shortened, the the, the the system being attacked by oxidative byproducts of just excessive living. And, and to look at it that way, yeah. then that puts this whole thing about calorie restriction in a more realistic, mechanistic viewpoint. I love that, uh, that, that, that approach. Um, uh, so calorie is not just calorie. Calorie is just your body working harder, and then at the same time, if it's bad calorie, although that's a little bit of a misnomer, you, you, you're also creating a lot of poisons, like you know oxidative byproducts and, and all of this stuff. A beautiful
1: new perspective we've heard.
0: Absolutely, love that.
1: And when you eat the right foods, you, are comfortably, you become comfortable eating the right amount of calories. When you eat the wrong foods, it becomes almost impossible to feel comfortable eating the right amount of calories. Because your body feels too fatigued and the, as you know, when you, the sugar is shunted to, fat store, to storage as fat, it's not efficiently producing energy because you don't have the cofactors and, and you have excessive free radical production. What I'm saying right now is that a symptom of withdrawal from an unhealthy diet and the buildup of excessive metabolic waste is fatigue that's felt when the digestive cycle is completed. So, people are eating to keep their energy up because they feel a little bit wasted and fatigued. And they think fatigue, they mistakenly think fatigue is hunger. So now they're driven to overconsume calories to make themselves feel okay. And they don't recognize the reason they don't feel okay is their body is built up with metabolic wastes. And they really need to eat healthier so they don't feel fatigued. Not overeat to meant to treat their fatigue. So it's like a, it's, a, it's treating a withdrawal symptom mm. of food addiction. Yeah. Like having another smoke is, or another cup of coffee to reduce your caffeine headache. They keep eating to keep their energy up, and then they can't understand why they can't get to a normal body weight. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of the common things that we hear in the clinic, especially when someone comes in with um, unmanaged vascular risk factors and some cognitive uh, complaints, is, you know, we help them go um, on a whole food plant based diet and we highlight foods that are important for them to consume on a regular basis and help them wean off some of the, you know, processed foods that they're, they're used to. And obviously, when it comes to cognitive health, it's very difficult to see results immediately. But one of the most common statements that we hear is the fog has lifted. They feel the fog lifting. They feel this new found energy of being involved with things. They can focus better. They can see better. They can hear better. And it's so gratifying to see that. And I'm pretty sure that you've experienced that in your uh, career as well. So over you know over all these years that you've worked um, at, what was the most helpful thing for your patients and for your clients when it came to changing their dietary patterns? I know that you have the retreat right now, but for people who are in clinic, what was the best thing that helped them change? The 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 it factor that helped help things kind of fall in place.
1: They have to the understanding that it's normal and expected for them to feel worse temporarily. Mm-hmm if they're not instructed that, it's, that feeling bad means they're getting better, that the withdrawal that occurs over the first few weeks, they'll feel better eventually, but they have to um, not, and I always tell them, you know, and, and the reassurance that, don't even judge how the food tastes. You're gonna learn great tasting recipes, which is gonna take time, but your taste buds are going to change, your food preference is gonna change and improve. It's the trust factor and the confidence I can impart in them that you're gonna love eating this way if you give it time, but you have to be patient, that any professional athlete or any person who succeeded has to rep- repeat the right um, motions over and over again to get it down so it's muscle memory. And you have to re- you have to take the initiative, you have to be dedicated, you have to repeat the right things and you have to persevere at it. You can't expect results right away. Mm-hmm. And so I say to people, you know, don't make decisions about what to eat because those decisions is what got you into the problem to begin with. Yeah, you have to, you know, follow the program whether you think, you know, you, no matter what. Make a firm commitment right now. Make this commitment, and if you're feeling headachey or weak or. Digestive impairment come back to me with the problems that I'll solve for you and help you get through. But don't on your own go back to eating your old way, or don't try to solve this on your own. You're going to be right back to eating the, you know, doing what you did wrong to begin with. If you try, start to, you know, be your own. If you start to modulate this without the experience and knowledge, so it's in other words, um, it's it's the educational process that I think doctors don't have the time and ability to impart mm-hmm. to their patients in a medical consult environment. And that's where in the field of lifestyle medicine, we're encouraging doctors to run classes that go on for an hour, hour and a half every week in their clinics or so. So people have more time to get a detailed view of their of the recommendations, to interact with others, to communicate with a doctor in a setting, to make the commitment that these people have to make the commitment to join the program and not just follow what was told to them in a medical visit. Of course, they'll just make a choice to go to a different doctor and never come back, mm-hmm. or, or or come back and three months later and have gone on it and off it again and yo-yo their weight up and down. We have to make people get, um, make the commitment to get involved in a program. Mm. It doesn't have to be my program. It doesn't have to be coming here at the retreat. It could be your program or another doctor's program. But they have to be. They should be involved in some program that's committed to their success and supports their transition to make it possible, for, easier for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we,
0: we, we talk about the, we get into a little bit of the neuroscience of, you know, creating a good habits. And, you know, it takes time for uh, healthy habits or new patterns to be created in the basal ganglia. So that's exactly how it is. And yeah. Dean actually brings some of his management and uh, business background into this as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's yeah. all about those um pattern at the individual level. It's, it's habit creation through smart goals, but it's not just goals either. It's inculcating behaviors that become second nature. And, and, and that takes a little time. That takes clarity. Uh, but it can be done in any household, in any, any, any home. Um, and, and, and once they see the successes, and you know this better than us, you've been at this uh, longer than us, it's just remarkable how addictive the successes can be. That's why one of the first things we start, I mean, we we look at where is the success to be had? Where can we interject in this person's life where we actually get that success, that dopamine surge that's repeatable? Because that dopamine surge that's repeatable becomes the stream upon which everything else can be built. And uh, for different people, it's different things, but for a great majority, it's exercise. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a walk, a morning walk is, is the most successful thing we've ever seen. Of course, then on, on top of that, you build other systems as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. The doctors in the clinic, the 10 minutes that they have to see the patients, you know, smile, tap the knee, listen to the heart, and on the way out, write a prescription, that's almost impossible to, to do all of this and because all your life has been invested in in helping people when you know that there is another way you have to create language that 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 negates that otherwise the dissonance inside feels so bad that lifestyle works but i don't have time so i'm just keep pushing pills so yeah. it's it's a, it's a broken system that needs to be addressed definitely. and you've been working at this for a while
1: yeah exactly
0: definitely as far as the nutrition part comes, Dr. Furman. I know that I've heard you speak about how delicious (laughs) unprocessed foods can be, right? But it takes time. So for example, if somebody's used to eating fruit jellies or fruit roll-ups, right? Eating a raspberry or a strawberry would be a stark difference from that palatability. But if given time, it actually you start craving those unprocessed foods. Dean and I we you know as a family we went to Italy, great trip, had a lot of fun. But when we came back, the first thing we did was like, okay, we need to have some greens. We were just craving some greens. It was so funny. We just got our big bamboo bowl, we just filled it up with greens with, you know, very very light dressing and some other vegetables and some fruits and just Craving greens was something that I never thought I would have when I was a teenager
2: <laughs> I mean yeah growing up in Pittsburgh, you know um, I wasn't plant-based but my gosh I was probably the opposite and then coming back from Italy, this unusual feeling of craving for greens was just probably the most shocking thing I've ever experienced because we hadn't been away so we, we of course we stayed plant-based as, uh, throughout the trip but uh, the carbs, the carbs, the, the, the you know, carbs everywhere. Uh, and- Some
0: refined carbs, a little too many, uh, you know, plant-based pizzas. And so, you know, the idea that healthy food is not palatable or not delicious or it's difficult to eat is something that kind of fades away as people get used to it. And they start loving these fresh fruits and vegetables and foods that are very nutrient-dense. Right.
1: Right. And and we have so much, um, you know, experience with contribution from other chefs, too, to make this stuff taste incredibly delicious. And we have such great, you know, so I'm saying all of us collectively who've been living this way for many years have put together a, uh, you know, a constellation of recipes that are phenomenally delicious. But, you know, I can't even go to a restaurant and get the food tasting as good as what we can get, what we make here for dinner every night. You know what I mean? Um, and so that's a learning curve too for people. Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely, amazing. All right. So, as far as uh, you know, the nutrition aspect is concerned, you're basically saying, and your work has shown that people can virtually prevent, you know, most of the chronic diseases that we're facing. Whether it's <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, whether it's high blood pressure, high cholesterol diabetes, even prediabetes, and that's a subsequent diseases that come after that, that are as a result of these combinations uh, of, of risk factors like heart attacks, strokes, dementias, et cetera, correct? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And your work has definitely shown that as well. In, in your experience, uh, when people start changing their dietary patterns and their lifestyle, um, let's say, for example, in their midlife, do they still see the benefits even if they are at the beginnings of some of the, their diseases?
1: Profoundly, yeah. It it's really makes a huge difference. I mean, I, you know, I've, had, I've been in practice for so many years now, for many for decades, that I have people who've come to me with advanced heart disease in their 70s who are now, you know, who lived into, to live their late 90s, you know, or crossed the 100-year-old barrier who were very sick, when they were younger, you know, I've actually experienced that progression of people being their doctor when they were 75 with advanced heart disease, when they were 95, when their heart disease was not, was gone, mm-hmm. you know, so I've, and I've known so many people who've had, you know, um, you know, poor ejection fraction, you know, heart failure, who've gotten their heart function back again. Yeah. And so we've seen the remodeling of the heart and a reoxygenation of tissues. And, and I t- also teach people that. Um, we're developing these high-tech abilities to detect cancers probably decades before a mammogram could. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and as these new technologies come out, we're finding out that the majority of people over the age of 65 have some cancer in their body that's detectable. If you eat the, if you, in other words, if you ate the American diet for the first 60 years of your life, um, you most likely have cancer cells in your body. And when, when the breast, when the mammogram comes back positive and the Mass is big enough to be seen by the human eye. It's usually been there for maybe 15 years or so. There's been cancer cells for 15 years that now eventually coalesced into a size big enough can be seen. And I'm saying that the cancer cells are easier to defeat, destroy, and repair methylation defects in DNA, cross-link breakages, and and all you know all these things that we know accumulate in cells, epigenetic changes, to, you know that we can measure. We can we can fix easier if we start when you're younger and we don't let the, so we don't want to wait till a person gets diagnosed with breast cancer or prostate cancer. We want to get them wherever they are and they and that's why the diet style I recommend is considered for some people to be too aggressive or too radical. It's not radical or aggressive it's what people need to do yeah. to reverse the damage and to prolong their lifespan and giving them to give them a happy life and we enjoy eating this way tremendously yeah. because it tastes good and we feel so good yeah. and, I, and, I, and and I also make the radical statement, that I can measure, I can do some measurements to show people that they can actually age backwards to a degree. Mm-hmm. Because we can measure telomere length now, mm-hmm. and we could show that the length of telomere increases when they adopt this way of eating. And so it's not just the measure, you know, lowering cholesterol. We can measure epigenetic defects and methylation defects and telomere changes. So we're, we're having new technology research tools that will eventually become, you know, mainstream. Now, I'm actually doing a study on this now with, um, we're using some of these research tools on about 100 women um, who've been eating this way long term. What I'm saying right now is we can see even a three month period, we can see some of these markers, early markers of cancer start to go back the other direction. Mm -hmm. And these markers that define your weight, rate at which you're aging and developing disease can go the other way when people switch to a healthy diet. So we have more measurable ability to show that we're impacting people. And I'm saying, sure, we can at any point that you change, make the necessary changes for better health. You're going to most likely extend your lifespan. Even people who have cancer are going to live longer with less chance of recurrence from doing this. But, but of course, doing it with both feet in and not with one foot in both worlds, dabbling is that you know it makes it more difficult, more stressful, and less. Um, ability to transform the body and to write things that are wrong when you do it three-quarters or 80%. That's where really doing it full blast, you know, pay, you know. I always say, you know, the, the, you know, the, the last 5% is where the money's at mm-hmm. because you get so much more benefit when you do it all the way than you do it, you know, 90%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: True, wonderful. What are your thoughts about... Um, supplementation, Dr. Furman. Um, so, you know, for people who are on a plant-based diet, um, it is suggested that, you know, vitamin B12 can become an issue if they don't supplement. And in our line of work, I think it's important for people to be aware, not necessarily, you know, supplement everyone, but to be aware of their omega-3 fatty acid intakes. I wanted to see what your thoughts were about supplementation for people on a nutritarian diet or on a whole food plant-based diet.
1: Yeah, I, I think many people are. They're, they're, most of them are aware about the B twelve issue. You know, it's like one of my biggest pet peeves is this thing with folic acid, because women are told pregnancy They're told in childbearing years they should be taking folic acid to prevent birth defects, and I'm saying no. They should be eating a diet rich in folate because green vegetables are more effective. And green vegetables don't just prevent birth defects. They prevent. You know, don't just prevent neural tube defects. They prevent heart defects and autoimmune defects. And in other words, we've given people all the wrong information instead of thinking they can eat green vegetables to get folate, not folic acid in a pill. So very part of my teaching is what not to take as a supplement and try to get those nutrients through food because you get a more profound and beneficial effect. Mm -hmm. But I do pay particular attention to the omega-3 index, as you mentioned, to make sure it's adequate in people. You know, I mentioned earlier when you asked me how I got into this. I got into this through the American Natural Hygiene Society back in the 1950s. where Herbert Shelton was the major kind of like leader of that movement. And Herbert Shelton, but you know, and they wasn't just plant-based whole, it was people that ate super healthy. They ate no junk food. It wasn't just a vegan diet. They were eating healthy plant-based diet, and most, and they were aware of B12 supplementation. Um, Dr. Shelton himself developed advanced Parkinson's by the time he was 77 years old. The The head of the Natural Hygiene Society in England but when I knew these people, they were my mentors. These are the people I admired who were saving people's lives. And Dr. Sidwa developed Parkinson's disease in at a premature age. And then Dr. Vitrano developed Parkinson's and the head of the head of the natural um, organic natural food movement in America developed Parkinson's eating a so healthy diet. and so and I, and by myself being a younger, Per, a younger pers- physician following up these people who are my elders, I eventually became the doctor caring for a lot of these leaders of the natural hygiene movement, including people who were involved in the American Vegan Society in Malaga, New Jersey. So I saw vegans, elderly vegans, in my practice, you know, 20 years ago and before, and before that, who developed neurologic problems, both dementia and Parkinson's. And when I took their blood back then, some of them omega-3 index was, zero, was below one even, or zero. And, I, and there's been data to suggest that the, um, that the chemicals that induce Parkinson's, you become more sensitive to those potential chemicals when your brain is deficient in, DHA, in um, omega-3 DHA fat. Um, but in any case, I saw neurologic deficits, dementia, and Parkinson's be a major drawback of these healthy plant-based leaders and so many people who are my patients, so I became more concerned with that back about two two decades ago. Mm-hmm. And in my advice for people to take DHA back then, um, we noticed a lot of people were taking had burping and indigestion. That that some of these things were rancid. So I started to de- re- recommend refrigerated versions and you know get, getting a help you know um, products that weren't old or rotten. You know yeah. and, and not and tasting them. And but in any case, so I've been involved with that field for for decades and and been something that's been a a concern of mine because obviously the people I had um, cared, so many people I cared about got in trouble, not through B12 deficiency, but through severe DHA deficiencies. And there's a tremendous variability between people based on, I guess, the delta-6-desaturase delta, desaturase, delta 60 enzyme <laughs> and the ability to convert the ALA into APA and DHA. <laughs> and so there's such a wide genetic variability that some people could have a D, um, could be taking no DHA supplement and have an adequate level, and other people could be taking some and have an inadequate level. So I think it's something that, it's one factor that should be watched yeah. um, with, with blood evaluation to, to try, and I, at this point, um, in my field in my um you know level of study and concern is that i'm aiming for people to have a an omega-3 index above five mm-hmm. how about you guys what you have a number there that you use yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: so we just did two reviews uh, two comprehensive reviews um uh, one is omega-3 and the developing brain uh, which for children and and uh, at, at a time where their brain needs you know all the nutrients more than any, any other time and the omega-3 and the and the aging brain um uh, and Although the data as, as, as researchers were, you know, you want better data, you want better, more conclusive answers. You, we didn't get great data because not because of, well, mostly because the studies are not done well and, and they don't avail themselves to this kind of an outcomes uh, based study. But in general, the trends were strongly towards use uh, or, or making sure that people are not deficient of omega-3, um, be it through supplementation or be it through, uh, you know, food. I mean, uh, even people who, I mean, we're plant-based, uh, completely 100% plant-based, but the reality is the data on fish, especially smaller fish, is positive for brain. And we say, yeah, that, that's the data. We'd rather people, you know, do um, get their source of omega-3 uh, through plant-based sources, or if they need to supplement, go ahead and supplement. I mean, that's thats the reality. And And the ratio is on the higher side, as you stated. In fact, every study that came back positive was... At a much higher rates of intake when they did when they did take the vitamins, so we we're a little worried on the omega three and its relationship to brain health, not just for vegans, but
1: throughout the you know uh, lifespan sure. of everybody else. Um, yeah, but the other people do so many other things wrong. So even if their DHA yeah, is exactly. good, they're going to get demented. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like they they do they their diet is so poor that they can't expect the omega three index to prevent dementia. That's but true. once you're on a diet that's really good. Then you want to make sure you're not messing yourself up with one little thing that you could have tweaked. Exactly. You know? I exactly. I mean, we're talking about, about people coming to us for ADHD
2: for their children, not realizing that the food that they're feeding their children, and, and latest studies show there's white matter disease in 12-year-olds. White matter yeah. disease. That shouldn't happen you know in, in your 70s or 80s. Yet you see even 12 year olds and they're worried about, you know, vitamin. So you're right, there are bigger problems avoid, you know, the, the food that they're being fed is doing so much more damage than than, than what we we're talking about here. But if you're eating optimally, it doesn't hurt to be a little bit more aware of B12, the omega-3, and and, and and those are the main two ones that... Uh, yeah, vitamin D, because when we check vitamin D levels in, in, in our patients in California, sunny California, about 10 to 15% of them are vitamin D deficient. So at least check your levels to make sure that you're not deficient. Because if you are deficient, that's going to have a significant effect on you, and at so many levels. Now we know more of vitamin D's effect on the brain and, and the body
1: in general. Right.
0: Can you briefly describe the nutritarian diet?
1: Yes, it's a diet. Well, I I recommend people use a, a variety of plant foods, and so, but but rich in, of course, green vegetables. And I have this acronym called G bombs, G B O M B S, to highlight the foods I want them to eat daily because those foods have a scientific um, support for having anti-cancer benefits. Not that other foods don't, but these foods have a lot of support. And they start st- to induce people to have this variety of foods, including green vegetables, meaning not just cruciferous greens, as well as lettuce, the common and to Eat a salad every day, plus cooked green vegetables, and cooked plus the raw vegetables, um, and chew the salad really well. But then the be- bombs, the beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and other low sugar fruits, and seeds and nuts, but mostly, but, but paying attention to the anti-cancer benefits of seeds like flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds. And I'm also paying attention to the fact that when are people eating nuts and seeds, they try to not eat all omega-6 base nuts and seeds, but they use walnuts and hemp seeds in their recipes to balance the, so there's some um, awareness of eating, of having balance of omega-6 and omega-3 of eating. So when I have a recipe with cashews, I may take half the cashews out and substitute half hemp seeds. Mm-hmm. Or if it's all sesame, you know, so I'll, I'll mix the seeds so there'll be a little better omega-3 balance. Um, so, um, so essentially, um, it's a whole foods plant-based diet that pays attention to nutritional quality and designing a dietary portfolio with, a, with an adequate variety and of course, a dietary portfolio that includes all these um, beneficial foods, including greens and sprouts and, you know, baby green, you know, vegetables and, and a good variety of foods. And, it diff- and a lot of, as you're probably aware, a lot of the people who have been um, central in the plant-based movement in prior decades were people advocating extremely low-fat diets, mm-hmm. taking, telling people not to eat nuts and seeds and things. And I've always, Recognized and always advocated people utilize nuts and seeds to facilitate the absorption of fat soluble compounds and phytochemicals into the body Of course, we have to pay attention to calories not overeat mm-hmm. things right. we, we we shouldn't exclude a whole group of foods if they're you know, a, so I'm not so fat phobic mm-hmm. Though I'm body fat phobic, but I'm not Dietary fat phobic if it's a whole food coming from nut and seed mm-hmm. um, I-
2: comparable to your g-bombs in our second book here on the, my shoulder left shoulder we actually have uh, the neuro nine which basically is the same a lot of the same things as uh, the, the the g-bombs
0: yeah yeah definitely the greens beans Christopher's vegetables nuts and seeds um, herbs and spices and green tea because we have some evidence that green tea is quite helpful with reducing inflammation um, and, talk-
1: and reduction of cancer. And reduction right. of
0: cancer as well. Um, what are your thoughts about oil? Now, there's there's a whole lot of fight going on in the Internet as far as, you know, addition of oil is concerned. And as you mentioned, you know, it's a highly processed food. And, um, you know, there's, there's really no nutrient benefit in oils. But some of the studies that have come to us from, say, the MINE diet or the Mediterranean diet, which is pretty heavy, in extra virgin olive oil shows reduction in the risk of Alzheimer's disease and stroke. What, what, what has your experience been as far as the data on oil is
1: concerned? I think that it, um, for the majority of people, it interferes with their ability to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it maintains their fat storage hormones turned up on high, they can't get the extra fat off. I don't think there's any nutritional science in the world that could argue that walnut oil is healthier than a walnut, or that sesame oil is healthier than sesame seeds, that any of these diets advocating oil can't, they're not claiming that the oil is better than the original food that the oil came from, they're claiming the oil's better than no oil or other sources of fat like butter and lard and meat fats and other types of fatty foods or other types of food. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the controversy is there. I think that it's recognized nutritionally and it's shown in, in so many studies that corroborate each other. And there's more than a, there's more than 20 studies showing the inclusion of nuts and seeds over oil it reduces cardiovascular death and all cause mortality and cancer death. So I think that if you're going to eat walnuts versus walnut oil or olives versus olive oil or avocado versus avocado oil, it's always better to eat the um, same or reduced amount of calories from the whole food. By the way, you know, a, a couple of tablespoons or a, quarter cup of nuts or seeds has less calories than a quarter cup of oil. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're increasing nutrients, you're increasing fibers, you're increasing sterols, stanols, beneficial factors, and you're reducing calories mm-hmm. when you're taking, getting the fat from nuts and seeds versus the oil from the nut or seed or from the food. Yeah. So I don't really see that as a controversial issue. I just think that people are, that these people are appealing to people's social norms and making and thinking that oil is better because they don't imagine that people will stop all oil and eat the whole food instead. I don't water down the recommendations for social norms or to get more, uh, you know, more people, you know, to act to um, adjust it to people's food preferences. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, everything's watered down to give people what they want to hear. <laughs> and I don't think even the most the scientists advocating oil could, it would even argue that oil is better than the whole food it came from. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. No, I, that, that makes complete sense. I just, um, I hope that at some point we will have that kind of data to clearly show, you know, the comparison between an olive and olive oil to see what it does. But, you know, based on what you're saying. We have some we of that data. That. We have a
1: lot of that data. Even the Prevamid study, which showed that giving people more olive oil reduced cardiovascular deaths by 15% mm-hmm. when they take olive oil home with them. Yeah. Predamid it's called. Predamid study, yes. Yeah. yes. I think. Yeah. And then they gave them nuts and seeds, and the risk of heart attacks went down much more precipitous than they did with oil. Right. And they took the oil away and gave them nuts and seeds. But there's so many studies to show that um, nuts and seeds, in particular, have protective effects to stabilize the heart against cardiac arrhythmia as well. Right. So there's been numerous, including the um, Physicians' Health Study too, Physicians' Health Study. But as you know, the Seven Day Adventist Study, um, both one and two, showed tremendous protective effects from the inclusion of nuts and seeds. Compared to using oil, correct. And yeah, no, we we we've been part of that.
2: The the one thing that we usually in in our in our book we said that olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, given the data, given the the, the data that we have, in small amounts, if calories not an issue, can be used, um, um, but not to the extent to say that it's a you know it's a health food or it should be added uh, um, because it's a health food. But as, as an adjunct, when, when, uh, uh, when you're starting at a point, <laughs> the standard American diet is so far from healthy diet. Even the American Heart Association says that the number of people that are eating healthy is 0.4%. We're that far away from reality. So By
0: their standards. By their standards.
2: So for, for us right. being by in our standards, yeah. Right. But by for us who work in the in the communities and our uh, for us it's all about working in communities and moving large populations uh, all our life has been some that is seeing how you can actually take steps to move towards the optimal. There's no question that the optimal is a whole food plant based diet. There's absolutely no question. But the steps towards that is critical as well. Well, this is this is uh, wonderful talking to you. You're you're absolutely. Um, uh, somebody that we've been following for a long time with the same uh, issues.
0: I know that you've authored, you know, so many incredible books and seven of them are New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember uh, uh, after medical school, one of my friends actually gifted me your book, um, Eat to Live. And I, Mm. I, I carried that for a very long time and I read it and I loved it. But... In your opinion, uh, what is one book that you would recommend to the audience to reinforce and expand on our discussion today?
1: Thanks for that. Well, I always recommend people do do my my latest work because it has the most updated research, which is Eat for Life. Right. Which is, you know, I love Eat to Live and I sold like 3 million or 4 million books, which is fantastic, but it's still better to get the Eat for Life, which is more updated and more recent. I have more than, and it's not just um, to get all the research, it's that all the research used in the book is more updated. So you. So it's always better to have the most recent thing. I think. Eat for Life be the place to start. Yeah, I
0: Completely agree. Eat for yeah. Life is the wonderful, wonderful. Well, we thank you so much for your time, Dr. Furman. This was so much fun to to listen to you live, and thank you for all the years of your service for helping people take control of their health. Thank you for being a voice of reason for uh, trailblazing the path for a lot of young scientists and doctors who are now doing amazing yes. work in the hospitals and the communities for, you know, for shifting the paradigm of how we see health and our lives. So thank you very much. Yes.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I think that's also tremendously rewarding because when I started out, um, years ago, it used to be like 30 people came to the, the lifestyle medicine conferences and now it's thousands of people. in yeah. it. And so just to have seen the growth of this movement and what happened in New York and all the, there's so many doctors that, um, that have, you know, that have now this movement is growing so nicely and exponentially. So that's exciting to see and tremendously satisfying. It really it is. Is. It is, it really yeah.
0: is. What's well, our pleasure to be in the same journey with you.
1: Thank you, and thanks for the wonderful work you do too. Thank you.